0: Asymmetrical Haircuts. Justice Update. In partnership with justiceinfo.net.
1: Alright! Hi, this is Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg. And as always, I have my co-host Janet Anderson with me. Hi, Janet.
2: Hi. Steph, we're going to talk Ukraine and accountability today. Why? Because this week The Dutch are holding a big conference here in The Hague with ministers flying in and the Ukrainians highly present to try and sort it all out, you know, all of the problems that we see there. So good luck with that. We thought that we'd take a bit of a step back and try and unravel some of the issues and try and work out what the debates are still about. And we're going to
1: try and do all of this in 30 minutes
2: yeah, that's the challenge. To help us, I've dug out a couple of interviews that I did way back in March, which feels like an awful long time ago, with some Ukrainian international law experts. I want to show what we were thinking then and compare it to what we're thinking now. I want to show how prescient their comments Ah, oh, from then. I mean, everything has changed. Everything's morphed. Uh, it's got bigger and more complex. But in fact, nothing has changed because it's all still the same issues. And what are the issues, Janet? Well, I don't know. Just how do victims of this Russian invasion of Ukraine and the war that's going on in Ukraine actually get justice? How do we get this accountability project thing that we all talk about all the time and includes loads of acronyms like the International Criminal Court and local trials and maybe Eurojust, which we might mention again at the end, all the coordination stuff. How does that
1: all fit together? And to try and make sense of it, we have some clips of former ICC and ICTY judge Howard Morrison, who is also right in the thick of it working for the Ukrainian Prosecutor's Office. So that way we also
2: get a sense of the now. But I thought maybe I'd check with you also, Steph, to fill us in with your Reuters hats, because you are very concerned with the now, you know, as a news hound. So when you're thinking about Ukraine,
1: what are your big issues? My big issues for the moment is that we hear a lot about fragmented uh, stories of individual war crimes, and I'm um, trying to get a helicopter view of kind of the overview of crimes, where we, if we can say something about the scale that things that are happening in, and it's also very hard for us to get our finger behind who exactly is doing what on the ground. But that is a problem I think more people are having.
2: Okay, let's uh, see whether we address further those questions, provide any insights, or whether we just say, yeah, those are some big questions. Let's start off with uh, a bit of a recap. Way back in February, I mean, just after the invasion, um, maybe into the beginning of March, I managed to track down Mikhail Gnatovsky, who's a Ukrainian law professor and special advisor to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And he was explaining to me how Ukraine has already been at this international law stuff, you know, lawfare for some time.
3: From the outset, Ukraine decided to use uh, every possible uh, avenue to uh, bring uh, the uh, matters related to, to Russia's aggression to international courts. And this is a consistent strategy since 2014.
1: And in that clip, he was talking about the European Court of Human Rights cases where Ukraine has brought several claims against Russia.
3: Some observers even would have said that there have been a bit too many.
1: And those are interstate
2: cases. That's what comes up there. and. Really, Mikola, you say there have been a bit too many. You're about to become a judge there. In fact, I think you just got um, uh, signed in as a judge. What's the word for, for getting a judge in, Steph? Sworn in. Sworn in. That's the one. Uh, so, congratulations. So, it'll be your job now to actually uh, sort these cases out. He told me that he felt the ECHR had regrouped some bits well. Crimea was kind of separated off a little bit from
1: the different kind of issues that were going on in the Donbass. And there's more ECHR cases. There's Ukraine in the Netherlands versus the Russian Federation in MH17 case.
2: Yep. So while we're on these various fora, we also rattled through.
1: The International Court of Justice, this is the high, UN's highest court where there is a third case, and the third says for the UN anti-discrimination um, treaty uh, and the financing of terrorism, which Ukraine accuses Russia of doing with their support for pro-Russian
3: militias.
2: And
1: uh, Mikola was reasonably positive
2: as he was talking about those things.
3: In both cases, I think things were moving fairly okay for Ukraine, but uh, also very very slowly, of course, in in the best, so to say, traditions of international justice.
1: And the thing that he isn't mentioning here, of course, is that there's another ICJ case uh, which Ukraine brought against Russia for violating the genocide treaty by saying that Ukraine uh, was committing genocide and using that as a pretext for the invasion.
2: How's that going, Steph? You're just on a side sidebar, what's happening there?
1: Slowly, slowly, as always. Although uh, they did, the court did order provisional measures, and they actually ordered Russia to stop the military invasion of Ukraine, which of course has not happened. And now we're waiting for the next phase in these proceedings, which is that Russia will probably put in a, a preliminary objection to the jurisdiction of the court, and then you'll have other hearings about that, and then they decide... And then once they pass that hurdle, if they say that they have jurisdiction, then only then can you go on to an actual treating of the substance of the case. But that is years away at this rate.
2: Okay, then I think we've kind of wrapped up a little bit, very superficially, I'm sure, the stuff about the state level. But on another track, I also was talking to Katerina Busol, who's attached to Chatham House. And... We spoke about a variety of things, but the first thing I want to pick out from what she said was about how NGOs, the Ukrainian NGOs, have also been working on accountability issues since the Russian started the the, the war in 2014.
0: The world has woken up to the existence of Ukraine, and let alone the war crimes there in February 22, whereas the country has been, as a civil society and you know, as the numerous state authorities, they've been trying to pursue different justice avenues since 2014.
2: And what she's saying is that what is happening now in Ukraine, now in 2022, was already happening and was essentially being ignored by the rest of the world. The
0: patterns of crimes, which we are seeing now on a horrific level, the uh, enforced disappearances, torture, conflict-related sexual violence, it it had been there before February 2022. One can look at the reports of the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission, the statements, uh, the findings of Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and the numerous... ICC communications um, and reports submitting by Ukrainian human rights groups. So I think there is a feeling that this whole uh, justice-related response has been overdue and that Ukrainians, it's something that they demanded much earlier.
2: But uh, the reason why I was speaking to both Katerina and to Mikola back then was that the whole international law community was really transfixed by a whole discussion about whether or not there should be a special court created and very specifically to deal with the crime of aggression.
3: But this whole sort of architecture has an obvious gap and this is the crime of aggression.
2: So, Steph, let's just Maybe not too long, because it's, uh, it's again one of those rabbit holes that you can disappear down. Can you explain why this crime of aggression is so important and why people see this kind of gap, as as Mikola put it in the architecture, to do with how the
1: ICC operates? Well, I think one of the things is, is that it's, everybody knows that kind of invading another country is against international law. And so people expect there to be consequences, but there aren't uh, generally because there is no international treaty that has some jurisdiction linked to this crime of aggression or there isn't, at least for the uh, UN's highest court, the International Court of Justice. We do have the ICC can also treat the crime of aggression, but it's only worked out in a specific amendment or a specific clause, and if you you have to ratify that specifically. So it doesn't go for all member states. You can't uh, take anybody to the ICC for a crime against aggression unless they have signed this particular uh, protocol. And that means that you have very few countries or member states that have actually signed that, and and those that that haven't, you can't take to the ICC for a crime against aggression. So, in the case of Russia and Ukraine, neither Russia, who is not a member of the court and probably would never sign this uh, special crime of aggression amendment, did that. Uh, Ukraine is also not a member and also has also not signed this this aggression pact. So, or not aggression pact. Now, I'm I'm sounding like the. <laughs> There's a whole different thing that we won't get into. Um, we didn't sign this aggression uh, crime of aggression amendment for the court. So in this case, it really doesn't apply. So you would need to set up something something different for that. Part of me feels that this whole discussion,
2: which I think you summarized very well there about the complexity of putting any individual on trial for aggression, is like being parked. It's been really overtaken by other events, which, which will Will come to sort of basically the amount of crimes that are going on on the ground, but when I see what some of the Ukrainians are lobbying about, they're still fairly fixated with the idea of putting potentially
1: a very senior Russian figure on trial, and then it would be fairly much easier to get them for aggression because it's a very kind of non-complex thing. Uh, instead of trying to get him for war crimes where you would have to get the whole chain of command and everything. We have also had a chat with Howard Morrison, a former ICC judge who was closely involved with investigation on the ground. And he actually made this point that aggression is relatively simple. You don't need a huge amount of evidence.
4: In the crime of aggression, you you can work backwards from what's actually happened on the ground. And you can say, because this happened, and because it was it happened and was plainly done in an ordered and orchestrated way, you can ask the question: Well, who had the power and ability to orchestrate this and to order this to be done? And if you follow that logical trail backwards and upwards, uh, inevitably, in a society where one individual or a number of individuals has a, a, a great deal of power over what happens. Uh, in, as far as the military is concerned and the activities of the military, or simply the the military objective itself, then you would be able to say that those people must have directed an unlawful uh, crime of aggression. And that would be uh, the way that you would go forward with the evidence.
2: And, of course, that leads us all to ask, so realistically, could you actually imagine putting Vladimir Putin, the Russian president actually in a dock somewhere could that actually happen
4: well of course this is in a sense theoretical and speculative Um, and whether it was President Putin or any other situation and any other president you wait to see in a sense what happens I mean when I was a judge uh, or when I was involved with the Yugoslav tribunal it was commonly said that the tribunal would never try Milosevic, Mladic or Karadzic, but the political atmosphere and the political wind changes and blows in different directions and people who were once in power find themselves not in power and people who were once thought themselves to be immune find their immunity has uh, has gone. So you can't predict uh, with accuracy what's going to happen in the, in the near or middle future. But the short answer is that if somebody is in a position of power, of of ultimate power, whether it's President Putin or anyone else, the real politic is that it's very unlikely that that person is going to be arrested, extradited or brought before any court or tribunal. You have to have a, a very realistic view of the limitations. But because the limitations can change unexpectedly, I've always been optimistic in these cases.
2: Another thing I just wanted to pull out, and I don't know whether this is something that's also struck you, Stephanie, is that right the way through from February, even up until now, there are so many references to Nuremberg. People are talking about how that happened, what it means, what it meant then for the international community to come together and what it could mean now for it to come together and create something new. Katarina also explained to me that Nuremberg has this really strong resonance throughout post-Soviet countries.
0: For Russia and for Ukraine, Nuremberg has a great symbolic value. In this area, in the post-Soviet area, Nuremberg is usually perceived as the trial of all trials, which was the victory of the ultimate good over the ultimate evil. So any proposal that has a comparison with Newburgh will likely raise positive sentiment in the post-Soviet area.
1: And we should mention the podcast on Nuremberg we did with Fran and Diana. It's one of our current bestsellers. It gets listened to a lot, and if you haven't heard it, you should really do, because it really lift the veil off what's going on behind the scenes, and also the importance of, for example, Russia in the Nuremberg trials and, and also how it was seen, how geopolitics influenced it. It's really, really an interesting read, especially because, as you said, Janet, we hear so much about Nuremberg, and it seems to resonate with everybody much more than for us tribunal nerds who are like following the ICTY and the ICTR and all these other courts. Every discussion for people who know the basics of war crimes comes back to Nuremberg somehow.
2: I also wanted uh, to pull out another part of the interview I did with Katerina because I was amazed listening back that she was talking to me about the perceived weaknesses in the Ukrainian justice system. Now, I'm not amazed at the weaknesses. It's just again a theme that I am hearing emerging again and again.
0: Ukrainians are not stereotyped about their justice system. And on the one hand, I think it's a very interesting phenomenon. On the one hand, you will see civil society and human rights groups cooperating a lot with investigators and prosecutors, gathering evidence and submitting joint communications to the ICC. On the other hand, this very civil society would be very sober in speaking when they speak about the potential corruption among the judges and the lack of, um, well, proper knowledge of international humanitarian and criminal law within the larger criminal justice system.
1: And we've seen in Ukraine the first local trials where the Ukrainian justice system uh, is kind of being tested. And they were very fast. They were quite quickly, after a few months of war, there were already uh, war crimes trials. The sentences came relatively fast and they were really, really high. For example, the first uh, war crimes case that was put on was for a soldier who had shot somebody and admitted it. Uh, and also expressed remorse in court, and he got a life sentence and Now, if you follow the international tribunals like, like Janet and I do, those kinds of cases where somebody has well single killings we we very rarely see in international tribunals, but if you have a single killing and guilty plea and an expression of remorse. Those are the kind of cases that in international tribunals, those people get maybe two, maybe five years if it's a particularly gruesome killing. So there was some concern that it was done so fast. Do you have enough time to mount a proper defense? So in essence, lots of questions about are these proceedings fair?
2: It was... Also interesting to talk to Howard Morrison, who has all of that experience behind him uh, in international criminal tribunals. I I think he's been in defense and he's definitely been in prosecution. He's now actually working directly with Irina Venediktova, the chief prosecutor of Ukraine. So we asked him when we caught up with him in May, what he actually makes of the Ukrainian system so far, um, because he's experiencing it directly. Is it competent and is it fast?
4: Investigating crimes where the conflict is still going on and might even intensify is obviously much more difficult than doing it post-conflict when uh, access to potential crime sites and to individuals would be a lot easier. I'm hugely impressed by the uh, Ukrainian prosecutor general and by her investigators and by the people on the ground, who I think bearing in mind the, the complexities and limitations doing this during conflict have done a uh, remarkable job so far. And I have every confidence that they will continue to do so if they get the help and assistance that they, they need, want and need.
1: So he has confidence, but he also recognized that the system needs a lot of support because they're not specialized in international humanitarian law.
4: I am looking at things which produced as potential evidence and giving a personal view as to whether or not that is the sort of evidence or the sort of factual allegations that would be acceptable to an international judge, wherever that judge might be sitting, whether it's a pre-trial judge or a trial judge at the ICC, or perhaps even a judge at an ad hoc or special tribunal for Ukraine, which is still under consideration, or whether or not I can assist the ukrainian judges who are dealing with war crimes by uh, that's one thing that's in work in progress is setting up a training course on international law and war crimes to assist those judges who will not have dealt with these matters before and perfectly understandably and may want uh, well will want a, a a background and a foundation of icl and IHL.
2: and what about when faced with such massive numbers i mean any country would be overwhelmed, even if they're you know, incredibly competent already. And we're talking about some like 20,000 cases I heard just uh, recently. Do the investigative judges have forensic training? Do they know the right way to deal with evidence?
4: There is a query as to how that evidence of that should be put before a court, uh, how it should be investigated, what sort of things need to be done what the level of forensic examination or evidence needs to be. There are, for instance, protocols for dealing with mass grave evidence, um, whether or not those protocols are are being followed, whether or not they're even recognised or known about by the people on the ground. Because if you've never investigated a mass grave before, then you are... I've spent 20-odd years looking either literally or metaphorically into mass graves and, and the rules and protocols surrounding them, but if you're doing it suddenly and for the first time and in a situation where the conflict is still raging, it's a very hard task.
1: Yeah. And I mean, just to reiterate again, it's a huge number of cases. And how does how Morrison think that they're managing with this number of cases realistically?
4: It would be an enormous amount of investigation in any country, in any circumstances, and in a country which is still uh, undergoing conflict uh, it's a particular difficulty but it's a testament to the determination of the uh, investigators and the prosecutors department that they have worked so quickly and i uh, identified so many things in a time scale which um, simply wasn't expected and certainly wasn't apparent in some other tribunals so there's there's reason to be uh, very impressed but you're right you, you can't unless you have an adequate base for a number of investigators access to war crimes or potential war crime sites and then a an ability to accumulate identify analyze preserve and pass evidence up a a, a chain of custody um so that it's ready to go to court as and when the court has time to deal with it these these are ongoing seriously difficult issues but it's happening and the fact that already somebody has been indicted and convicted on their own admission of guilt of a war crime and been sentenced to life imprisonment is really working at a pace which i i think would surprise a lot of people
2: Okay, well, we've thrown a lot of um, spaghetti at the wall here. Um, we've covered interstate cases, crime of aggression, local investigations and stuff. Just to borrow an outline that uh, Howard Morrison gave us, that I'm not going to, re- going to repeat his words, but, but this is what he was saying, is basically there are four ways forward. There's the International Criminal Court and what they're doing. There's Ukraine and their domestic Side of things, there's the possibility of a special court, and there's universal jurisdiction, which is where other countries join in and put people on trial there. What do you think, Steph? Let's take each of those one by by one. Can you get a handle on how the ICC is is operating? I mean, just to say from my perspective, I hear the prosecutor Kareem Khan saying the same things again and again and again you know how are they doing?
1: I think they've moved forward very quickly and they seem to be quite agile and like getting uh, people on the ground. On the other hand I do hear a lot about how kind of hard it is to coordinate everything and there is probably what we don't see, but I imagine there's somewhat of a turf war behind the scenes in the sense that everybody is investigating the same cases and you have to kind of decide who gets to do what. And I know I know Khan wants local uh, prosecutors to take as many cases as they can. So that's point two. That's, you
2: know, yes. Ukraine doing stuff domestically. So you think that the idea is that... Ukraine gets to do as much as possible, and the ICC what guides,
1: helps, supports, does a few few cases. I think more that yeah, the ICC is aiming to do the gravest, uh, most grave cases, and that the higher, highest up. I wonder if down the line that the Ukraine will not want to try to try them also themselves, because those are also the cases that get a lot of attention in Ukraine. So at what point do you want to hand them over?
2: Do you remember when he spoke to us about his work at UNITAD, where in Iraq, when he was looking at the trials there and preparing for potential trials, he said he took kind of a selected group of cases, like one that represented the Yazidis. So he wouldn't do all of the Yazidi cases. That would be up to other prosecutors. And he'd do one for another sort of specialised group. I I wonder whether he's taking the same approach over. The other thing I want to ask you is what you make of the kind of huge support that seems to have come in for the ICC. We are hearing regularly about uh, not only lots of additional people who are working with them, but also additional money.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a real concern, and, and NGOs and Amnesty have made the comment that there might be a two-tier system, that we have to be careful that there's not a kind of two-tier system for the ICC, where lots of money and manpower is going to these cases that everybody won tried, like Ukraine. But uh, there's not an, there's not a lot of money or there are constraints in, in other cases that uh, the international community is maybe not as eager for the ICC to look at, um, shall we say, Afghanistan, just to throw in the dark there. I think it's very, I mean, I don't want to say it's possible, but I see where the concern is. If you ask Karim Khan, and we have, he will say that, you know, this money is not specifically earmarked for Ukraine. He doesn't allow that. It just goes into his office and, and this expertise kind of lifts up all the other investigations, because of course, if you throw all this manpower and money at Ukraine, then you also release, you're not spending it on that, so more money comes for these other cases. I mean, it's hard to see how that will work out in reality, but I have seen that the Office of the Prosecutor has put out a statement that they've also done like extra uh, investigation and forensic investigation into mass uh, graves in the C.A.R., and so I think that's also a show of, look, we're also using our forensic capability for other things. We're not only looking at Ukraine. This is what we're also doing with that boost of of uh, manpower and, and resources that we're getting
2: quick question um, to you about uh, universal jurisdiction, which I think in this case basically means how do you rate what Eurojust is doing in terms of their their coordinating role um, between all of these uh, different jurisdictions that might want to take part? Then after that, maybe we can have a quick chat about whether there might be another court or not.
1: I think Eurojust has proven itself in kind of cross-border war crimes investigations. They've done a lot of in Syria cases. The the Koblenz case had uh, witnesses from other European countries that Eurojust coordinated. I think that with the amount of Ukrainian refugees all over Europe, there is a big chance that you'll see some universal jurisdiction cases in, in EU countries. I have to laugh a little bit about uh, the Eurojust coordinating, um, because they always love to say how like technically advanced they are and they're so used to doing all these meetings with multiple countries. But I had a press conference this morning of Eurojust about a network of uh, people smugglers who were arrested. and. There was no sound, there was no video, it had to be postponed for half an hour, so I was kind of joking about the coordinating capacities of Eurojust, but uh, to be fair to them, they just couldn't organize the the video web meeting, Uh, they did or managed to coordinate arresting 39 people and shutting down uh, people smuggling networks so I guess they're very good at that bit of it it's very obvious that coordination is needed and this is an organization that's kind of bread and butter is coordinating these kind of very complex cases so I think that can only help but I do think it adds another player to the already like wide spectrum of people involved in this so it has to go over so many different people that you know i I dread to think what meetings everybody must be in all the time to get this kind of sorted.
2: And uh, the last point, I think, is whether there may be another mechanism set up in some form. I'm not hearing so much a big discussion around a special court for aggression. I mean, maybe that's still in the works. And I'd be delighted if our listeners got in touch and said, no, 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 you don't understand, Janet. You know, it's this is what's going on in the background what i am hearing though is considering the enormous number of cases considering the challenges within the ukraine domestic system considering that icc is most likely to only take a couple of cases there is a perception of a gap on the level of war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine. And there is a lobby for a hybrid tribunal there with some form of international support, some form of Ukrainian support, where it would be, how it would be, who would put the money into it, etc, etc. I think is all completely up in the air at the moment. But I am very definitely hearing that that lobby for that. Are you hearing that as well, Steph?
1: I'm hearing that as well. And it makes sense. If you look at the Bosnian War Crimes Chamber, that is a model which which I hear uh, a lot, but that also because I'm uh, I'm also listening to the Yugo side. But that was after the international courts, and it was obvious that the local uh, justice system had trouble doing all of these war crimes. They set up a kind of hybrid special war crimes chamber within the Bosnian judiciary which had international judges helping also the local and international prosecutors helping put these cases together. I can see how that kind of court would make sense for Ukraine because they do have their own legal infrastructure to have these kind of places. It's a kind of cheaper version of an ad hoc tribunal to have just this hybrid uh, war crimes chamber within your own system. And importantly crime against aggression is in the Ukrainian law so you could potentially have a crime against aggression case in Ukraine uh without having a special aggression tribunal as part of kind of local cases apparently this is what i've been told maybe it's wishful thinking from from Ukrainian lawmakers uh but that is something that that might Bring all of this together where you don't need to put in heaps of cash to have an entirely separate court, but you just give some support and international judges and prosecutors to help with this case with the framework that's already there in Ukrainian law.
2: Okay, lots to uh, get our teeth into, I'm sure, still over the next year. But uh, let's just leave the listeners now with a couple more quotes from our Ukrainian colleagues. First of all, here's uh, Mikola Knatovsky saying, in his view, um, I mean, again, this was recorded back in March, that the ICC cannot be enough. But altogether, I mean, as people who are concerned about this, we just have to get on with it.
3: Something like, well, roughly two thirds of the existing states are parties to the, to the statute. So, which leaves us with, with a big part of the world not covered by, uh, by the ICC's uh, jurisdiction. And this means that there isn't a the perfect solution. I mean unless unless some you know some aliens come from outer space and do it for us. I mean there's, uh, <laughs> this, this has to be done by, by, by those who are able and those who are willing. But well, this is, this is frequently the case in international relations and international law that, that the able and the willing are, are actually active.
2: And here's Katerina Busso with a sober warning to end with that just having a kind of a one-size-fits-all approach, sort of picking up exactly how things were done somewhere else and saying, let's try it here, won't actually work. She says that to provide real accountability, you have to have lots of specialisation. You have to have real understanding of local context, of policy elements, of how to put together all of that to prove these massive and very complex crimes, a really big job.
0: I think assessing, again, policy element, crimes against humanity or genocidal intent is impossible without looking into the Russian sources, the actual... um, wording of how they treat the Ukrainians and I think without this uh, desire to dig deeper into the regional and domestic context we will not get the full picture so it's not just about uh, I think given the convictions for war crimes or even the crime of genocide or crime against humanity it's also about building the narrative which is as inclusive as possible and which is embraced by the future generations
1: One of the points she makes there is that it's not just about accountability, but also about the way that future generations will see these crimes. Obviously, it's very important to look at that. I know from my experience in the former Yugoslavia that the court was really touted as a path towards reconciliation because there would be a kind of legal truth established about what happened and everybody would accept that, and that would really help people to kind of come to terms with what happened in the war. And from my experience of the former Yugoslavia, that's just not happened. Courts are not made for reconciliation and and probably also not even made for having a historical narrative. They're they're very tailor-made for a certain legal narrative to have points that you can prove and points you can't, but it's also always going to be framed by detractors of the court as a very political thing. And with all the you know, the entire might of the international community's uh, justice system and transitional justice system thrown at the former Yugoslavia, it is not reconciled. There is a lot of distrust and uh, problems between the nations there because, you know, these court cases are not bringing people closer together and they're not establishing some universal narrative that everybody accepts. But one kind of light point at the end of that dark tunnel, because this is a pretty sobering story, is that what these trials at the Yugoslav Tribunal have done is kind of narrow the space for denial. It's not about whether these crimes happened anymore. Now it's about how many people exactly were involved. But the idea that crimes were committed and atrocities did happen is accepted so i think that's kind of the the best you can you can aim for
2: okay well good nuanced view uh, maybe a bit sobering but uh uh you know we're here for the nuance aren't we and we'll we'll carry on talking about it i'm sure there's an enormous amount that we haven't managed to cover i mean at some point in the future we really want to look in depth at uh sexual and gender-based crimes that have been committed in Ukraine and exactly what is being done in order to help those survivors. And we have plenty of other plans as well. But uh, I think we'll just wrap up with that. And I'll, I'll be going along to this accountability conference, the ministerial conference on July 14th. And I uh, hope that I get some insights from that into uh, what the future plans
1: will be on Ukraine. Yeah, tell me all about it because I'm going to have to miss it because I'm going to be in my beloved former Yugoslavia to uh, to be on a little holiday. So enjoy the accountability conference and we'll be back and I'll ha- we'll have another justice update where you can tell me all that they decided. Okay, see you soon. Bye. See you. Bye.
0: This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in The Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word.